0: Crowd, huh? All right. Thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us uh, this afternoon. My name is Patrick Spitek. I am a political reporter for the Texas Tribune. Uh, on behalf of the Tribune, I'm very happy to welcome you to the 7th Annual Texas Tribune Festival and to this afternoon's panel, uh, The Democratic uh, Playbook, a discussion on 2016, 2018, uh, and Democrats in Texas and uh, Democrats uh, across the country. Um, we have some great panelists today. Um, to my immediate left here is uh, Chris Turner. He's a, state, a Texas State Representative. Uh, <laughs> he's from uh, graham Prairie. He chairs the House Democratic Caucus. He's represented House District 101 since 2013. He also represented the district uh, from 2009 to 2011. Uh, to his immediate left is Jess O'Connell. She is the CEO of the Democratic National Committee. She oversees uh, the party's day-to-day operations and political strategy. Uh, She was named to this job in in just May of this year, and previously she was the executive director uh, of EMILY's List, which helps uh, work to elect Democratic uh, women. And to to Jess's immediate left is Gilberto Inosa. He's the chairman of the Texas Democratic Party position he was first elected to in 2012. He's previously served as a uh, Cameron County Party Chairman, and before that, Cameron County Judge. (laughs) And last but not least, on the the far left over there, we have Wendy Davis. She is the uh, 2014 Mm -hmm. Democratic nominee for governor in Texas. Before that, she served in the uh, Texas State Senate, and in 2016, she founded uh, Deeds, Not Words, an online engagement initiative uh, that's focused on women's rights. (laughs) So just a little a little bit of housekeeping before we begin. Uh, this panel is going to last about an hour and we'll try to include about 15 to 20 minutes of audience Q&A um, at the end. I will remind you at the end, but please make sure your, your <laughs> questions are concise and you get to the point so we can get to as many uh, audience questions uh, as possible. There will be uh, microphones, I believe, on either side that you can begin to line up at, and I'll definitely give you guys a heads up when we're uh, heading to that point uh, in the conversation. And, and just a reminder, as always, please uh, silence your cell phones, and in the event that you would like to tweet about this panel, the hashtag is tribfest uh, 17 All right, so this panel uh, is theoretically about 2018, but I feel like we can't talk about 2018 before we talk about uh, 2016. Obviously, the presidential race didn't work out for Democrats, but there were some bright spots uh, here in Texas when you really dig into dig into the numbers. Um, just one example, obviously, is that the presidential race margin was uh, nine points, which may sound like a lot to some people, but it was the narrowest uh, margin of victory that a Republican nominee had in Texas uh, in two decades. And, and we can go down to various legislative districts and look at, uh, you know, instances that... Mitt Romney may have carried a district where Hillary Clinton is now uh, easily carrying the district So I want to start with you. Mr. Chairman. I mean what was encouraging about the 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 results in Texas in 2016? And how do you uh, devise a strategy for 2018 with those those results in mind?
1: Well 2016 was the best year Democrats have had in over 25 years in Texas I mean you were right. We we came within single digits in the presidential election We hadn't done that since Bill Clinton ran for uh, president uh, 25 years ago. What was significant though is in some of the large urban areas like Harris County that we had lost by 80,000 votes in, in 2014, we won this election cycle by 165,000 votes. We won every countywide seat, including um, seats that we hadn't held forever. Uh, the district attorney, we ele- elected the first female district attorney. Uh, for the Democrats uh, in history, we elected again a Hispanic sheriff, an African American tax assessor collector. Um, we did uh, also. Uh, we took back Her- uh, uh, Bear County again. We had lost Bear County in 2014. Uh, uh, we won by large margins in Bear County again. Had huge margins in Dallas County, the Rio Grande Valley had the largest turnout in history, and so did El Paso County. So overall, in the big urban areas, our performance increased significantly. And, and um, a large part of the reason that happened was not just Donald Trump, because of the f- fact that you ended up having huge increases in Latino turnout, up to 30% increases in places like Harris County. But a large part of the reason also was that in some of these large urban areas, especially in ha- Harris County, we built really strong organizations there that have been working for years to get to that point that are now in place and I think that it can deliver good performances in the future, particularly 2018. And so we're confident that given uh, uh, our ability to move the needle forward significantly at that time and what we're seeing right now, for example, uh, all across the state of Texas where you have large groups of people that have never been involved in politics that are energized. Uh, Organizations like Indivisible, uh, huge groups of of young people or middle-aged people that have never been involved in politics before, organizing, putting rallies together, recruiting candidates. You know, you were talking about earlier uh, state representative seats. We had 10 state rep seats that Hillary won that are controlled by Republicans today. Um, Two U.S. congressional seats that uh, Republicans controlled that Hillary won as well. And we had another ten house seats uh, state House seats where uh, the margin was one or two points in uh, all those districts in all those districts today we have not only do we have Democratic candidates running we have contested primaries uh, with multiple candidate Democratic candidates and all across the state of Texas even in districts that that Hillary didn't do as well we've got Democrats running in con- contested primaries we'll have candidates probably in every single state house seat, state senate seat, and congressional seat. We've never had that before. So that enthusiasm that you see out there, um, it's unparalleled. And if you combine that with the strong organizations that you've seen developing in these large urban areas, and, and we're making a massive effort to try to get uh, uh, rural and non-urban folks all across the state of Texas to improve their performance, I think since February, We've been to 110 counties across the state of Texas trying to talk to Democrats and say, well, you don't have to win your county, just do better. Because when you put all the do-betters together, you get to 51%. <laughs> Definitely so want to get to that. That's, that's, but that's,
0: just just as, as you're watching this uh, on the national scale, Is the DNC looking at Texas in a new light after you saw these results in 2016? What role do you you see Texas playing in the national strategy for 2018 and beyond, given what happened here in in 2016?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I I also just want to address the the trend from 2016, because I do think, but for the presidential election, there were some bright spots that got missed that I just think are important to note when we talk about trends. Four of the five incoming new Democratic senators were pro-choice Democratic women. Three of them were women of color. That is incredible. The first Latina ever elected out of Nevada, Catherine Cortez Masto. There have only ever been two women of color elected to the United States Senate before last year. That would have been the story. And I think that's important because that underlies what was happening uh, in some of these other states and in some of these races, and which brings us to Texas, too, which I think, you know, look, I, I'm from, I grew up in Arizona which uh, is very similar in many ways in terms of challenges and opportunities uh, to Texas. And I I believe in the changes uh, that are happening here in Texas and I think that uh, you know, it takes time to build the kind of infrastructure that is needed to win. We have a big state here, um, and we understand that you know, demography isn't destiny. We've got to do the work to actually translate uh, everything into votes that will actually help elect Democrats, but I believe that uh, this last election, um, the, the gains that were made in the presidential election, uh, and the work now that has been inspired in so many groups, as you mentioned, Chairman, uh, so many new groups and groups that have been working for Democrats have been formed and are coming together united on issues that we all care about. Uh, and you look at the health care fight in particular, uh, both here in Texas and nationally, this is an area where everybody's united and has come together. And even when we don't have the numbers, even when it feels like the deck is stacked against us, we have a victory there. Um, now, again, we're going to have one more vote on this. They're going to spend another, I don't know how long, how much money, seven years voting on this. But we'll keep winning because we are organized around these issues. And I think we're seeing the changes that the chairman and others have been working on. So we believe in Texas. Yeah, I want
0: to, I want to ask about state and in just a moment. But, but Wendy, you've, you've been on the front lines of trying to make Texas more competitive for Democrats, uh, even before your 2014 uh, gubernatorial campaign. What have you observed just in the past two, two to four years since that campaign? I mean, how do you see the, the terrain shifting if, if it is?
3: I I see it shifting because ordinary people are coming forward and saying, I'm going to take responsibility for being a part of moving this state forward in a way that they haven't been before. I mean, one of the real challenges that we have in Texas is that people turn out in presidential elections. They don't turn out, particularly Democrats don't turn out in midterm elections, I had two experiences recently that really kind of created some encouragement for me about the landscape of what's to come. I met a woman in Colorado on vacation who is from Dallas, and she comes from an affluent suburb. She lives an affluent life. Um, And she talked about the fact that she, you know, created kind of this Facebook conversation with some other women in her community, And now there are over 400 of them who are coming together. They've never done this before. And they are fired up about making sure that they're going to do something um, to make a difference going forward in electoral politics. And they're looking very closely at state elected races as well. I met someone in Fort Worth last night who told me that she started this little um, Facebook conversation in the Mid-Cities area of Fort Worth, which is very, very conservative. It's literally the birthplace of the Tea Party. And she was sharing the exact same experience. That She started out with nine friends, having this conversation. They had their first meeting, 50 women came, and they now have 500 plus women who are part of their group in this little part of the Mid-Cities area in Tarrant County. So. These things are really encouraging and they're happening organically. I wish we could say that we could take credit for having built all this great infrastructure as a party. We know we have a tremendous challenge in our infrastructure building here. And that's what I'm so focused on with my nonprofit work, though it is not a partisan organization. It is all about making sure that we are showing young women the path from the things that they care about and the facts that the political arena is the only place where they can get something done on those. And making the connection that civic engagement, civic participation is the way for them to see the reality, the vision of what they want Texas and the rest of the country to look like. And I think it's that slow one by one by one person infrastructure building that's ultimately going to get us where we are. You know our demography says we already ought to be blue. And I told people all the time on the gubernatorial campaign and I completely believe this, Texas is blue. We are already blue. It's a matter of making sure that we're getting people to turn out and vote and to believe, which is the real challenge, That their vote is going to be enough to make a difference. As long as you believe it's not, you're not going to show up. And and that's really our our great challenge to solve. You mentioned
0: this new enthusiasm. I do want to move on to issues. Representative Turner, what are the issues you foresee that Democrats in Texas are going to rally around in 2018? Obviously, a lot has happened in the White House since the 2016 presidential election. We've also had two, I would say, very contentious legislative sessions that you're very well aware of. For, for 2018, what do you think is going to be the, the, the agenda on the campaign trail for the Democratic ticket? Yeah, well, look,
4: I, I think the uh, 2018 campaign environment is going to be very favorable for, for Democrats in, in Texas and, and across the country, obviously. But um, here in Texas, um, let's look at what happened this last year uh, in the Texas legislature. Uh, you've seen uh, 600 school districts see the state of Texas saying, you're not providing adequate funding for our public schools for 5.2 million Texas school children uh, who are in K-12. And and the Supreme Court said, the legislature has to deal with that. What does the legislature do? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Uh, The House, to its credit, tried to to pass a a start to to try to fix the school finance problem. Uh, Dan Patrick and the Republican Senate killed it. Uh, so I think that's issue number one. Uh, we're a, we're a young, growing state. Parents care about the kind of education their kids are going to get. If we don't get public education right, nothing else really matters. So so that's that's number one. Uh, number two, uh, I think for for all the strength uh, historically of, of the Texas economy, um, and and you know Texas has been blessed with oil and gas in the ground and uh, being located in the middle of the country and and the wisdom of our leaders in the past investing in infrastructure, you know, airports and ports and, and uh, other vital uh, infrastructure. Uh, we haven't kept up lately. Uh, and that's why I think we see, uh, you know, these e- national economic writings for the, you know, for the rankings for the first time in, uh, since its inception, the CNBC list of best places to do business. Texas isn't in the top uh, three or four. Um, uh, one, one ranking has, has fallen from number three to number 21. Uh, so people are, I think, are increasingly concerned about the direction of the Texas economy under Republican leadership. Thirdly, um, I would say uh, healthcare, uh, which is magnified by what is going on in Washington right now by the Republican Congress's and the Trump administration's attempts to re- repeal the Affordable Care Act, and having no plan uh, to replace it credibly to see that people don't lose healthcare. Uh, that's magnified in Texas because our Republican leadership refuse to expand Medicaid on the Affordable Care Act, that has cost us $10 billion uh, roughly annually uh, in not drawing down our tax dollars that we send to D.C., uh, and that's cost one million Texans coverage. That's one million Texans who would have coverage if they lived in some other state, but they happen to live in Texas and they don't have coverage because of the Republican leadership. I think all those issues are going to be critical, uh, as well as uh, the Republicans' continued efforts to try to divide Texas and save us. And we saw that over and over and over again in the last session, starting with SB4, the Sanctuary Cities bill, uh, followed by uh, some efforts to, to pass the, the bat, so-called bathroom bill uh, and new attacks on women's health care. All those issues, I think, create a good yeah. environment for Democrats. And
0: Jess, you already mentioned healthcare From the national perspective, what, what do you anticipate will be the major issues that'll be animating uh, Democratic voters in 2018, yeah. for, particularly at the state level? And if I could just add on to that too, how much do you make Donald Trump a part of that message in, in 2018? I yeah, know, that's a lot, I'm sorry. That is a lot, that's
2: okay. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that, um, you know, the Representative, you know, the issues that you're facing here in Texas are gonna be the same issues we're facing nationally that we're gonna be hearing about. Uh, We spent, the DNC spent the summer organizing all over the country in all 50 states uh, with our resistance summer program and that was we, you know, knocked on over half a million doors and, and contacted folks via phones. And the issues that we were hearing are the ones that are not going to be surprising to you is about the economy, finding ways to have better jobs, lower uh, cost of living for folks. That's what's keeping Americans, Texans, I imagine, too, up at night. And healthcare, because it continues to be under threat by the Republican administration. Um, those are the number one and number two issues that we hear the most about. Uh, and I think, you know, Something that sort of ties all of this work together is that the states are, uh, because the federal government is really inoperable at the moment under Republicans, they own it all and they can't get anything done. Um, You know, because it's not working, it is falling on the states to solve so many problems at the state level now, and so we're seeing similar uh you know issues that are coming up i think along the way um, and it's why the dnc and that Na- the national party wants to invest in the states uh, we've launched a program called every zip code counts uh, to ensure that we are helping to fund uh, the chairman here in texas and all 50 states to ensure that that infrastructure that's needed to win statewide races to win at the local level is there we've also launched a competitive grant program of 10 million dollars Uh, that all of the states will be eligible uh, to write in for grants to the National Party to innovate because we understand that we have some challenges that we've known about and some new challenges, and we have to figure out how to land some message and connect with voters. And so we want, if there are good ideas coming out of Texas, we want to scale that up and make sure that all the states can participate in that. And so that's how we're going to tackle some of these issues.
0: Yeah. I'd like to, to move on and highlight some key races that have already kind of emerged on the Democratic ticket in 2018. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, the Democratic congressman from El Paso, was I think on this exact stage a few hours ago. Um, you know, he faces, you know, like many Democrats right now, Texas faces an uphill climb, but certainly there's been some encouraging signs early on, including uh, easily outraising Ted Cruz, I believe, in, in the second quarter of this year. Uh, Mr. Chairman, is this, is this a race that national Democrats should be paying attention to at this point? I mean, what have been your takeaways as you've watched the early stages of the, the award campaign?
1: Well, the advantage that we have is that he's running against Ted Cruz and everybody hates him. You know? <laughs> somebody, somebody said this. That- <laughs> There could be a homicide in the full Senate of Ted Cruz and there would be no witnesses. Yeah, famous quote. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, you know but, but that's not enough, right? And what you have with Beto O'Rourke is a candidate with enormous amount of enthusiasm. He's got that Bobby Kennedy look. Joe Kennedy III was at a fundraiser that we had last week and he said, he's not my brother, right? <laughs> uh, uh, and, but, you know, he's gotten out there and he's done it the way you're supposed to do it. I mean he has taken retail politics to an extreme that we needed to see in that election he's gone to every part of this state he's uh, met in in in, in large uh, uh, v f w halls or in small restaurants or in bars, wherever he can find voters, he's out there talking to voters, and he's being passionate about the issues, and he's, more importantly, he's talking about the economic issues, uh, as was mentioned. Really, that's, that, that is what we have to do as Democrats. People need to hear from them about the issues that are important to their families, and the most important issue to them is, how are you going to make my life better? How are you going to make sure that my family is going to have a better life economically than than? than my parents' family had. Uh, and he's talking about those issues consistently all across the state of Texas. So I think that's why he's gathering a, a lot of support out there. And he's able to raise, he's outraised on the last two uh, reporting cycles, he's outraised Ted Cruz significantly in fundraising. And he's not accepting any political action committee meeting, um, committee uh, uh, money. So that is amazing. It's all small contributions, kind of like the campaign that Bernie... Sanders ran, where he just would accept small contributions, and he was able to generate a lot more money than, than, uh, than Th- Ted Cruz has. So we're excited about him. And if you haven't seen him speak, you need to go find out where he's at and listen to him, because you will be just as excited as everybody else has been out there. With
0: Jess, are, is the DNC paying attention to this race? Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we are paying attention to all the races here. I mean, one of the first things that Chairman Tom Perez did when he came into the DNC was said... Uh, look, we need a top-to-bottom overhaul of the National Party, and we need to make sure we understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. And the first thing we did was change the mission. Typically, the Democratic National Committee has been solely focused on electing the next president, and that's obviously something that we've got to work towards. But we also changed the mission to ensure that we are working to elect Democrats from school board all the way up to the Oval Office, and that means that we're paying a lot more attention to every single race all over the country. And just on the hope side of things, you know, a little bit of glimmers of some of the things that are happening out there that probably are not getting enough attention. We've had some state and local races at the legislative level, which of course, as you all know, is so incredibly important to flip some of these chambers and to be able to make change in deep red districts that Trump won by double digits just in this last November. Oklahoma, since this last election, we've already flipped three seats from red to blue. New Hampshire, same thing, won a race there that was Republican-held, double digits by Trump in 2016. Iowa, same thing, double digits. So it's important the believing and knowing that you can do it and stepping up to run, which takes a lot of courage in this environment, to step up and run uh, is really important, but it's happening. And you're going to start to hear more about it, and we're investing in these local races to make sure it can
0: happen. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look down this, the statewide ticket for Democrats, there's still some slots that the party's looking to fill. I'll ask you this, Representative Turner. How confident are you that by the filing deadline the party's gonna have a, a full and, and competitive uh, statewide slate of candidates? Oh, I think there'll be a full uh, slate of candidates. I, I don't have any any doubt about that.
4: I, you know, There's a number of people thinking about uh, running for, for statewide office. We're you know, still, gosh, over, well over two months away from the, the filing deadline. Um, I was reminded recently that uh, in 2014, uh, our gubernatorial nominee, Wendy, uh, announced in, in October, I believe. I it was October 13th. In, I just looked it up. Is <laughs> it the 13th? Before this. Not right now. <laughs> uh, and uh, in 2010, uh, Bill White, uh, our nominee that year, announced in December. So um, so I, I know, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, there's enough there's no, you know, candidates, that kind of thing. I think there's still plenty of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but. Uh, I, I will say also that you know what, what we are seeing is candidates coming you know, out of the woodwork running for offices up and down the ballot, as, as the chairman talked about. Just in the congressional district I live in, for instance, uh, held by a Republican, there's there's four or five uh, Democrats running there. Um, and, and as as was discussed, we have you know, ten districts in the state house that Hillary Clinton carried in 2016 that are currently held by Republicans. Um, if you're a Republican. Uh, in one of those districts, um, you've, you've, got a, you've got a serious political challenge in, in 2018. Um, and there's a, another 10, 12 districts where, you know, it was relatively close uh, between Trump and Clinton. Because and these districts are changing and, uh, and in, in a favorable political environment, which 2018 looks to be if we work hard at it. It's, it's not something that we can take for granted. But uh, historically, a midterm election is, is favorable mm-hmm. for the party out of power in the White House. Uh, that, that bodes well, I think, for, yeah. for Democrats. And I, and I would add, very importantly, one of the most important races in the state, uh, in my home county, is, is Senate District 10, right. um, which is the most competitive district in the state, the seat that Wendy Davis held for two terms. Um, uh, we have a very strong candidate there, uh, Beverly Powell, right. running, uh, and, and I think Democrats will yeah, take I, that back that seat. If we have time, I want to ask about the, the state
0: legislative map. Uh, on this question of, of statewide candidates, so I want to bring you in, Wendy. You obviously have experience uh, in this category running statewide in 2014. Uh, what advice would you have for people who are already... Democrats are already running statewide in Texas for 2018 or who are thinking about it, maybe on the fence. What would you say to them at this point?
3: Gosh, I, <laughs> so much. Um, look, it's a, it's a challenging climate, right, for a statewide candidate and any candidate in, in Texas right now. Republicans have held power for a long time, and they've used that power very strategically to try to make it as hard as possible for voters to participate in elections and therefore for, for Democratic candidates to win. Uh, my election was the first time that we had the what even the Fifth Circuit said was a discriminatory voter ID law in place. Um, the repair to that, I don't believe, is went far enough, um, but I'm not sure we're going to get the kind of help from the courts to force it to go even further than the fix for that that was implemented. We of course um, have had many, many years of gerrymandering to the point that it makes people believe Look, I worked on that state house candidates race and it didn't make a difference because the deck was so stacked in that district that my vote, my voice just doesn't matter. And it's hard for people to lift themselves out of that feeling and get really invested in a statewide race. Um, And then, of course, after this next election cycle, again, because Republicans have been very strategic about trying to hold... Uh, voices of voters down Uh, this will be the last election cycle right Chris that we're going to have straight party voting straight ticket voting Um, and that's going to have some impact on us as well so there are a lot of challenges but on the ground work connecting with voters doing the things that Beto is doing right now that's really what a candidate needs to do I raised $43 million in my race. It was more than any statewide Democrat had ever raised um, and spent in a race. Bill White, or not Bill White, Tony Sanchez spent more, um, but most of that was out of his own bank account. Um, and still, there was so much more that needed to be done. Um, the infrastructure in Texas is tattered. Um, And we need the help of the DNC. Uh, We need the help of the DGA. We need the help of the Senatorial Campaign Committee to come in and, and make the kinds of investments for us to identify and turn voters out. At the end of the day, it is all about identifying and turning out voters. Candidates need to do their part, being on the ground, meeting as many as they can, inspiring as many as they can. But if we continue to be ignored by the national organizations who aren't making investments in Texas, if we continue to be ignored in presidential contests by presidential candidates who aren't making investments in Texas, we are never going to build the kind of database and infrastructure that we need to really be successful going forward. And I think we have to decide, look, Texas matters It matters on the national landscape. What happens here to the 27 million plus people matters, but it matters so much in the electoral college landscape. And as long as we're going to have that, Texas is the grand prize that we all need to be turning our focus and attention on from the national level to make sure that Democrats are going to be able to regain the White House and hold on to it and see the vision and the policies of Democrats moving forward.
0: Yes. So moving down the ticket a little more, and speaking of national attention, we have at least two congressional districts that are getting uh, new national attention. The 7th congressional district in Houston, currently held by Republican John Culberson. The 32nd in uh, Dallas, currently held by by Republican uh, Pete Sessions. Um, These are newly competitive races being newly targeted by national Democrats. Uh, Jessica, I'll throw this to you. What do you think is going to be the message and the strategy against those, those incumbents um, who, who may have not you know, previously had a, a competitive general election?
2: Well, look, I think, you know, th- this is true particularly for the two that you mentioned, and I think we're, we're looking at another race or two as well at the federal level that uh, Hillary had won where there's vulnerable Republicans sure, as well. That, probably
0: the 23rd congressional yeah, district. exactly. Yeah.
2: And um, look, I think that uh, the thing that all of these incumbents have in common is Donald Trump, and, uh, and they are, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that... I think we are working hard to try to do is to make sure that people understand the challenges that we are facing right now are not just President Trump. Or even his administration. It is every single Republican that refuses to disavow him when he stands up for white supremacy, when he goes after our Dreamers, when he is, you know, not focused on jobs in the economy, when he's disbanding his manufacturing council that's meant to provide jobs and make a plan, when he, you know, stops talking about infrastructure because he wants to talk about race riots that, uh, you know, his folks have been helping to start all over the country. This is the challenge that I think those incumbent are going to have. And it's part of the reason that they're vulnerable. And absolutely, uh, those, are, those are seats that can flip and they are going to get national attention.
0: Right. We mentioned the, the crowded primaries. And I think that yep. particularly applies to these three or more congressional districts. We're also seeing a lot of women run for office in these, in these Democratic primaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you've been at Emily's List uh, before this, this current job. Uh, do you see that nationally? And, and what do you think is driving that particularly in this, in this political moment?
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. One of the last things I did before leaving Emily's List and coming over to the DNC was helped, it was after the election, was helped to launch a campaign called Women Should Run. And uh, over the last eight months, that campaign has yielded 18,000 women across the country who have stepped up to learn more about running for office. 18,000 women, which, by the way, is remarkable in its own right. Uh, But Emily's List in its 30-year history has trained about 10,000 women to put that in perspective. So women continue to lead the resistance in this country. They continue to be the ones who are blowing up the phones in Washington, D.C. and breaking the switchboards, which, by the way, they were broken over health care. They could not take on more incoming calls. So keep breaking them. Keep breaking them. Obviously, the women's march following the election was a uh, really the catalyst for so many people to come out into the streets. We had millions all over the country. And, you know, the question I kept getting right after the election was, well, is this going to be sustained? This is just a moment. And I think every one of our panelists would agree this is sustained. We've seen the fight in the nominations that Donald Trump had over uh, his administration. We've seen the fight over health care. We've seen people take to the streets and to social media on all of these issues. You know, the, the Republicans right now Uh, Have destabilized every area of our country, you know uh, We're you know, we're worried about national security in a new way because of this president We're worried about the economy because he's not working on the economy, you know, just this morning We all woke up to tweets from our president talking about Steph Curry and Kaepernick right instead of talking about Americans who need our help and the federal government's help in disaster recovery from Irma from Maria from Harvey here in Texas. That's what we need the Republicans focused on and they're just not.
0: Sure. I have just one last set of questions, but if, if you're thinking of asking a question, you may want to start uh, lining up so we can uh, get through as many as possible. Um, I want to open up this question, um, and we mentioned this earlier, to the, the three Texas-based panelists here about the, the state legis- the state legislative races in 2018. Uh, Wendy, obviously, you represented Senate District 10, uh, you know, usually a very competitive uh, district or viewed as the only competitive district. What are, what are going to be the, the pickup opportunities in the State House, particularly uh, for Democrats this time around? You mentioned the 10 districts that flipped to Hillary Clinton. Is, is that kind of a foundation or is that aspirational? I mean, where do, where do you start? What's the roadmap? Well, I think... Um,
4: you know, without without ranking them because you know it's it's a little hard to tell you know who's sure. running exactly yeah. where well, it's and, and exactly Yeah, it. absolutely. Yeah. Um, but look, if, if you're let's start with Dallas County, right? And we just talked about congressional district thirty-two, right. Pete Sessions' seat. Um, you know, every single House district in Dallas County uh, voted for Hillary Clinton. So if you're a Republican in the House in Dallas County, uh, and you're going to have one of the top congressional races in the country. Uh, over you on the ballot, that's going to generate a lot of interest and turnout. You also have a competitive state senate district there, uh, Senate District 16. Um, those are uh, key opportunities for, for Democrats. One of those seats, uh, well, a couple of those seats last time uh, were, were very, very close as it was. So, so I think I think that's a uh, that's a natural place to, to start. Um, and, and in the state senate, as I said, Senate District 10 um, is is a very, very close. District, it's exactly it's drawn exactly the same as it was when, when Wendy won it in 2008 and 2012. Uh, so that's a key opportunity. And and then you look at, you know, between, uh, you know, suburban, uh, say suburban Austin seats uh, that have increasingly trended uh, Democratic and are becoming increasingly close. We saw a retirement recently uh, like in Round Williamson Rock. Uh, yeah, yeah, Larry Gonzalez in Williamson County. I think that's a that's a key district that Democrats are going to be looking at. So, so I think there's a number of opportunities uh, around the state. And and again, as I said at the beginning, uh, Republicans
0: don't have a great record to run on uh, in 2018 based on what they did in this last legislative session. Mm-hmm. Mr. Chairman, how much in these districts is it not just seizing the momentum that you've seen in the numbers, but also finding the right candidate and making sure there's infrastructure at the, the local level in these districts?
1: Well, we're not having any problems finding candidates right. for the state house yeah. seat at all. And and I will, you know to follow up with Jess talked about. A lot more than fifty percent of the candidates in the House seats are women uh, today, all across the state of Texas. We have, uh, particularly in Dallas County, uh, Chris was talking about. Every Dallas uh, County uh, State House seat was won by Hillary. in in those In those districts, for example, just as a small example, we've got multiple candidates, and we've had multiple candidates for a long time that are already out there knocking on doors, putting the organizations together. Um, uh, and actually uh, putting together really strong primaries. A really strong primary for us is really important because you've got um, uh, different candidates that are running under the Democratic ticket, developing organizations, and engaging voters throughout that district, and when that candidate, one candidate ends up on top as uh, as our nominee, there's already an infrastructure in place that allows for the turnout that we need. A lot of these districts, and by the way, we, we haven't even talked about what could potentially happen if the if the federal district court uh, in in San Antonio is allowed to make its decision, which right. we all know is going to result in a, a, a few more, up to ten more new Democratic House seats, including House seats and new House seats in, in, in San Antonio and all across. Uh, I'm sorry, Corpus Christi, and all across the state of Texas, but. But what we're seeing is because of all that activity and the infrastructure that is being developed, you're going to have a, 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 a big turnout. Texas, let's be honest right now, the reason Texas is not blue today um, is because the Hispanic vote doesn't turn out the way it needs to turn out. Um, and what you saw the last election cycle in some parts of the state, uh, particularly in places like uh, in Dallas County and Harris County and Bear County, was a big move to register and engage Latino voters across the state of Texas. What these House candidates that you're seeing working already today are doing is that they're going directly to those voters in those districts. Those districts are competitive primarily because they have large Hispanic populations, large African-American populations, and large Asian populations, but the bulk, the greatest number are Hispanics. So you're seeing a lot of these um, candidates going to those Latino communities, registering the Latino communities, engaging them, and those folks will turn out at higher numbers. What that does is not just affect that particular House district. It has an overall effect in the state of Texas because it will increase turnout all across the state of Texas, helping us in our congressional races where you have a lot of those House districts already in those congressional seats, but for our statewide candidates. I mean, if you had Hillary was in single digits in this state. Um, what that could translate is across the board, from, for example, for somebody like Beto, if you have an increase in turnout in all these House districts, that's going to help him significantly and get him closer or above that 51% number uh, with uh, some more work between now and November of 2018. So it's a win-win for us all across uh, uh, the, the spectrum of races that are going to be up in 2018. Great. Well, I think we're ready for some audience
0: questions. Um, please, just a reminder: uh, keep your question concise, and if you have a question for a specific panelist,
5: make sure you're addressing them. Uh, we can start over here, sir. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. I'd like to thank the panelists first of all for coming. Uh, my question involves around messaging. I've been active in four or five different uh, Democratic cl- clubs and organizations as an activist, fundraiser, and door knocker, and phone caller, and so forth for three election cycles, and it appears to me, going into this cycle, that the Democratic Party, particularly this last year, and perhaps in 14, was lacking in the ability to come up with a unified message. Now what that means is, as we well know, and you, I think, will uh, advocate for this, or not advocate for it, but agree to it, that there's two factions, basically, of the Democratic Party. There's the progressive wing, and there's the, for lack of a better word, the mainstream Democrats. So the question is, how does the Texas Democratic Party come up with a unified message to put both of these factions together and win in 2018? What is the strategy? How do you do it? And how often will that message be resonating so that we could bring these groups
1: together? Mr. Chairman, you want to take that one? Yeah, I'm (laughs) glad you brought that up um, because I think that that is a big problem or has been a big problem. One of the best things that happened to us in 2016 was, um, the focus coming out of Bernie's campaign on the economic opportunity message. Um, we have for too long, I think as a party, uh, dealt with some of the social issues that have come up and uh, with uh, the uh, issues that um, are normally called um, identity politics, right? Um, and the average middle class uh, family they're more worried about whether or not their kids are gonna have an opportunity to go to a good college, whether their jobs are gonna be there and they're gonna have adequate wages, whether they're gonna have access to health care um, uh, All the things that we call are the kitchen table issues are the issues that we needed to be speaking to um, in the past. Bernie brought that to the table and said, this is what we need to talk about because this is what people wanna hear. And, and uh, people all across America reacted to that. Uh, I think that as a party, we need to spend more time on that. The Republicans are masters of pulling us into these other issues that are important because you know Democrats believe in, uh, in, in justice and fairness for everyone, no matter who that is, right? But a lot of times it detracts from the kitchen table issues that families need to be hearing about. And so what we've been trying to do Um, for a while um, is to get local party organizations and candidates to talk about the economic opportunity issues. That's what Beto's been talking about. That's what he's been focusing on, and people have been reacting to that very positively, and that's why you see a big movement behind him. I agree with you. I don't think we need to bring factions together to understand that's what the American, that's what the Texas family wants to hear. And that's how you get them to the polls. right? Any question over here?
3: My question is mainly for Jess. I'm a, my name is Karen Bishop. I'm a volunteer deputy registrar in Williamson County, which is pretty hard. Okay. And I'm thinking of the most awful thing that could happen in terms of voting. We could get the people registered. We could get them to go. But I have a fear that with Trump fanning the flames with the 3 million illegal voters that it may happen in 2018 or certainly in 2020, that right before the election, there'll be armed national guards, men and women, at every polling place. Have you thought of that? Are you prepared for that? Look, I
2: think uh, what we're seeing is right out of the Republican playbook. This is an important thing that they do nationally and at the state level, which is, uh, try to create some mistrust around the system. Uh, obviously, one of the first things that President Trump has done is create a sham voter fraud Commission that is ostensibly studying voter fraud that has been proven time and again to be fairly non existent. Uh, and so the DNC, along with others, have created a commission to counter this. Uh, we also have launched a voter protection and participation center that we are going to fund at higher levels than ever before uh, because we know that the Republicans will use some of the same old tricks but we also expect that there might be some new ones. And we also understand when we look at what happened in 2016 that voter suppression, people being turned away at the polls was a real problem and in some states might have made the difference. And so absolutely we're looking at this. This is something that we have to invest in as a party it's something that we have to start on early we already have paid staff that is working on this informing forming commissions uh, and some of those fights are going to be electoral some of those fights are going to be in the media and some of those fights are going to be legislative uh, and and through litigation to ensure that Uh, You know, our mission is to ensure that every single American can vote and that their vote is counted. Um, And so we've got to do that, because you're absolutely right. If we do all the rest of the work with the right message and the right candidates, and we turn everyone out and it doesn't count or they're turned away, we still lose. And I came to the DNC to win elections and help elect Democrats,
3: and that's what we're going to do. Is your commission prepared for the armed guards that will be at the polling places?
2: Well, look, I think we're going to have to tackle every situation as it comes. We've got elections in 40-something days. We're very focused on elections in New Jersey and Virginia, which uh, have two gubernatorial races. Next year, we're going to have 32 gubernatorial races. So we've got some opportunities right now in the next month and a half to see what happens, uh, what are some of the tactics that Republicans are using. We know that when Democrats get out to vote, when women get out to vote, we win. We win on the issues, our candidates win, so uh, we know they're gonna try to do a variety of different things. I can't speak to armed guards. We haven't seen that anywhere yet, but certainly protecting the vote, ensuring every American can vote, is a high priority
3: for the DNC. All
0: right, we'll take another question from the Senator.
3: Hi, my name's Brandy Chambers, and I'm one of the women that you're currently speaking of. I am a first-time candidate for the Texas House for District 112 in Garland, Richardson, Sachse, and (laughs) Roulette. (laughs) BrandyKChambers.com, y'all. <laughs> um, I was just wondering, what can candidates, especially first-time candidates, rely on to get assistance and resources from the party to help energize their base, to help get us into office? Especially for those who are not career politicians, we don't know the playbook. We need your
4: help.
5: Yeah.
2: I'm not
4: Thank you for running, first of all, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, look forward to meeting you and hearing more about your campaign. Uh, let me give you a couple quick uh, resources, and others may have additional ideas, but uh, House Democrats have a campaign arm, so the House Democratic Campaign Committee is chaired by Representative Cesar Blanco from El Paso, and uh, we need to visit with you soon and uh, talk to you about your race, and the HTCC, as it's called, uh, does provide uh, resources in, in targeted races. And, um, and uh, you should also be aware of Annie's List, which is a great organization uh, in Texas uh, modeled after Emily's List uh, to elect Democratic women and has been very, very successful in the races it's been involved in. So those are two key organizations uh, that you want to make contact with quickly uh, because they are there to support candidates uh, and help them design campaigns that can win. Uh, and, uh, and the state party, we work closely with the state party, and I know they have additional uh,
1: additional resources. Yeah, we we provide candidate training. We teach you how to use the voter activation network, the VAN. Um, we we have uh, webinars uh, on an ongoing basis that provide training on different campaign techniques or how to uh, use the different resources that are available with the party, uh, and that goes all the time. Uh, so. Um, if you haven't signed up for the candidate training, you need to do that soon. And we've got an outstanding program for that um, that I think if you've ever participated in it, you'll see that it really helps you improve the skills that you need to put together the campaign. Once you become the nominee, then, then everything focuses on making sure that um, the organizations that are in your community work together and, unif- and put the- and, and the party puts together a unified campaign in your respective county. We're pushing that really hard, more than ever now. That w- once it w- we're working with the parties uh, and the nat- and the state party is working with the people that may be running for statewide office. That that all across the state of Texas in 2018, we're going to have a coordinated campaign from JP all the way to governor. And everybody's going to pool their resources, work together to make sure that we turn out uh, our base uh, in these elections and get Democrats elected from the courthouse uh, to the governor's mansion. Take another question from
5: Good afternoon. Thank you for coming. My name is Parker Sewell, and I would like to know, uh, how is the DNC using technology, or how does it plan on using
0: technology to identify, target, and engage voters?
2: Absolutely. So, this is, that's a great question. And you've identified something that we are working on, and it's, Our highest priority. Uh, We're working on the organization and the work that we're doing with state parties because we've got to get back to boots on the ground and knocking doors. Uh, But technology is the other big thing that we're focused on. In fact, we uh, just brought on a new CTO at the DNC. His name is Rafi Gregorian, And and this is someone who is not in politics. It's not business as usual. It's not the same old, same old. He comes from the private sector. He was actually one of the engineers that helped lead uh, the launch of Twitter and they were building their infrastructure. He was also at Uber, and he's brought with him a whole bunch of talent uh, with some fresh eyes, along with some of the seasoned political professionals who understand Van, who understand voter contact, uh, to modernize the way we campaign and the work that we're doing. The Democratic Party has a tremendous voter file, and every single Democrat that runs for office, whether you're running for President of the United States or running for school board, you've got to access this data. So it's incredibly important that we're protecting it, that we're cleaning it, and that we're learning as much as we can about it. And we have a lot of opportunity to learn more about the folks that are in there and to add more folks to it, and we do that work with the state parties. Uh, as they make their calls and as they door knock, So uh, we're, we're going to be focused on that. We're also going to be focused on providing tools out to candidates and campaigns um, in, a, in a new and fresh way. We just haven't had the resources or the focus, frankly, uh, to do that. I mean, look, here's the bottom line. The hard truth is that the Republicans got ahead of us on this one the last couple years here. Uh, Since 2013, they spent $175 million just on technology and data infrastructure alone. The Democrats did not make any meaningful, uh, significant infrastructure investment on technology in that way over that time period, and we see the difference. So we understand exactly what we need to do to get it done. We have brought in very early on here, we've been on board a couple of months now, the talent to do it, and we're building. And what we're doing is we're focused on the elections that I mentioned right now in 2017, and we're running some experiments. We're creating culture change at the national party so that we're not afraid to try things, so that we can learn lessons that will help inform 2018 where the entire country is going to be at play in elections. and we have the opportunity to learn lessons, so we're bringing a culture of spirit innovation, some of the private sector to make sure that we're thinking about it in a new way and we're providing hard tools to people. We've already got Knock 10 out on the doors in volunteers' hands that helps them knock more doors immediately right from their smartphones and we'll be doing more of that and we're building on the technology from Hillary Clinton's campaign. She was generous enough to give us those tools, those data, all of the technology that they built and we're making it better.
5: Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. Just a heads up to people who may still be in line, I think we have time for just a few more questions. We'll go back over to this, this side of the room.
3: Hopefully this all comes out okay. Um, so y'all talked about courting various demographics of voters, um, people of color, Latinas, um, women, low-income folks. What have y'all done to really um, rally the votes of people with disabilities? Mm-hmm. That was actually, yeah. yeah. That was an issue, obviously, in, in my campaign. I was very pleased to have disability rights organizations that were behind me in the 2014 gubernatorial because, even though, of course, we have a governor in office now who has dealt with his own. Yeah. Um, challenges. He was not someone who was supportive of making sure that those challenges could be met for others. But you know, back to kind of the 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 point of what our messaging needs to be. People in the disability community care about the same things that people in the Latino community care about, yeah. and that women care about, and the LGBTQ uh, community cares about. We want to have good schools. Um, We want to be able to live the kind of life where we work hard and we see that we can have um, the promise of a better tomorrow created in our lives. And there's so many layers to that. Um, I find myself a little bit flummoxed about this conversation that we're having between economic issues and Identity politics, and I honestly don't like the term identity politics because it silos us And I don't think we are siloed people Though each of us may have unique challenges and issues that we care about at the end of the day making sure that we are free of Racial and gender and national origin and disability discriminations gives us all economic opportunity. Making sure that we are not assaulting women's reproductive freedoms, which keep us out of the workforce because we can't control our bodies, we don't have affordable quality childcare, we don't have equal pay, we don't have family leave. That hurts our economic opportunity. Every bit of this. every bit of these unique and important issues funnels up to that big one. And I'm concerned that we're having this conversation as a democratic party, that somehow they're mutually exclusive of each other and that we need to turn our attention this way and not be talking about these other things. They go together. And really our job um, is to make sure that we help people see the connection between that. And we help people see the connection that Republican policies that are assaulting or ignoring our unique challenges, regardless of what category we may fit into, at the end of the day, those ignoring of our challenges or assaults on us are things that are holding us, our families, and our economic opportunity back. That's our job from a messaging standpoint, I think, and that would certainly be advice I would give to candidates who are running statewide, at the local level, at the state level today. Those are the things that we need to help voters see that we stand for as a progressive Democratic Party that we've been fighting for and that we're gonna continue to fight for.
0: I think well, y'all we have? Time I'm curious to get this. input from the other members
3: because I feel like that's. I appreciate your answer and your and your thoughtfulness about it, but you don't see the Republican National Committee. You don't see the Democratic National Committee saying, "You know what? We're going to make this concerted effort to reach out to the disability community." There are movements within the disability community, yelling and screaming to get y'all's attention. And we're not getting...
2: Maybe it. you
0: guys can discuss this afterward. We just want to get to one more question over here. I know that there are people have been waiting for a while legit. on the side I'm of to talk to you about it.
2: Okay. Yeah.
0: Good afternoon. Thank you for being here. One of the challenges that I fear the party might face in 2018 is just the fact that its resources might be spread too thin. For instance, <laughs> if you look at the U.S. Senate, um, as y'all obviously know, only a third is actually up for re-election in a given cycle. And most of those who are up for re-election are Democrats. So... I'm worried that the party might have to focus a lot of resources instead of on winning new races, just on protecting those seats. So I'm, my question is, on a national scale, how is that going to affect the national apparatus's ability to focus resources on Texas? And at the state level, how, how will that affect the state's strategy towards winning, winning races in 2018? Just do, you want, to, do you want to take that yeah, one? Yeah,
2: sure. Spoken like an operative. <laughs> <So> <laughs> this is this is what we're working on, right? Look, here's the good news. I'm going to just, because I know we're running out of time. The, the good news is, is that there is a tremendous amount of money that is pouring in, both to all of the committees uh, and even, even, even to us, even though we're at some lower levels than some of the other committees right now, most of our money, 70% of our money is from grassroots donors right now, uh, which is good because that's the kind that sustains you, right? And... Um, You know, the good news I think about the resources is that there are so many really important organizations uh, that have existed for a long time, but also new ones that formed after 2016 Indivisible, swing left, do some, run for something. Um, all of these groups that are actively engaged and very strategic in electing candidates. That's because this is the thing, this is the focus. All of the organizing that we're gonna do around economic issues, around issues that move people, whatever those issues may be, is got to be in the service of actually connecting the dots, registering voters, getting voters to the poll and making sure their vote counts and they're voting for Democrats. And that's up and down the ticket. And there are so many groups working to do that and there is unity around issues there is unity among the Democratic Party whether your establishment whether you're the left side of the party or not the issues are what are going to bring us together we are so much bigger than one candidate or one issue our shared values it's what's driving donations it's what's driving the strategy and it's why we can win in 2018
0: thank you very much for the question and thank you everyone for asking questions please give it up for our panelists
1: thank you guys for joining us please enjoy the rest of your fifth best weekend